On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about an unbelievable prediction that was made about eight years ago. And not like tea leaves or that kind of crazy stuff, like analytic-based prediction. You'll want to hear about this and hear why it was made and what was behind it and what it teaches us. Fascinating stuff. We're also going to talk about your food. What's going to happen with your food in 2021? Well, you're going to eat food. Yeah, I know. But a lot more than that from a new survey of people, of Canadians, of what they expect from food this year. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Not quite a year, but six months ago, just days after the George Floyd situation began in the States and before everything went really squirrely, my first guest joined me to talk about something called Clio Dynamics. Um, the reason was a really interesting prediction that a colleague of his with whom he works closely uh, had made about the year 2020. Now, this was made in 2012. Eight years before is when this was made, this prediction. Let me read you what the prediction says. Said, historical studies show that society goes through long-term cycles of violence. There's buildup for roughly a century, then a period of violence or upheaval for 10 or 15 years. Then people get tired of it and the next generation goes back to being peaceful. It's then the grandchildren of that generation, the grandchildren who never experienced the severity of upheaval firsthand, who are likely to start causing problems again. My theory suggests it will be 2020 when the U.S. hits a new peak of violence. Remember, written in 2012. Now, technically, it's 2021. I understand we're days, but we're going to say it's close enough to 2020. This is, and, and what happened, it was in 2020. Remarkable. Uh, da Dr. Dan Hoyer is a Toronto-based scientist who is project manager at the Global History Data Bank Project. Uh, he joins us now. Dr. Hoyer, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate you coming back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I know you work closely uh, with Dr. Turchin, who those are his words. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that these were, when we talked last time, th this was your view of what was going to happen as well. So I guess congr congratulations are in order. I mean, at the very least, it shows you guys know what you're doing. There's something to it. It's not hocus pocus. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate that we have been sort of proven more or less right. Um, we were hoping we would sort of be proven wrong. Um, but it does, you know, hopefully raise people's eyes um, and open them that you know, a lot of these issues, a lot of the violence, a lot of the turmoil we're seeing, you know, it's not random. It's not based on nothing. It's not happening out of nowhere. It's really based on these long-term structural determinant, structural factors that Peter and I talk about, um, which means, at least in my eyes, it means that there's something we can actually do about it. We can correct okay. the issue. And let, let's jump in for one second, because I want to be clear that what you're doing, and, and I mean, look, I don't mean to be facetious. It's not fortune cookies. It's not reading tea leaves. It's not astrology. It's, there is a science and a study and analytics behind this. How were you and he able to anticipate this? Yeah, I mean, that's a really excellent point, because we're not, we're not in the business of predicting things. We're not predictors. Really, what we're doing is kind of forecasting. It's really like weather forecasting. So what we do is we explore sort of historical trends. We explore historical cases, modern cases as well. And we try to track how sort of long-term pressures build up over decades, sometimes even centuries. Pressures like increasing inequality, increasing immiseration among uh, the large majority of the population, increasing infighting among sort of elites and power holders, all these sorts of pressures build up. And if you can track when those pressures are kind of rising, it leads to these sorts of forecasts. We say, okay, the conditions are now ripe, but there's likely and increasingly likely to be some kind of outbreak, some outbreak of violence, some outbreak of civil unrest, 
mass protests, these sorts of things. And that's why we were able to say, okay, even in 2010 and 2012, as you pointed out, you could see even then that the conditions were becoming more and more favorable to these sorts of violent outbreaks and civil unrest. But the fact that you and he named 2020 eight years ago, is there an element of luck that you happen to get the year right, even though we're talking about the general time frame, or is it specific enough that you felt very confident that 2020 would be the year? Well, it's really interesting because it's not, it's not that specific. I mean, 2020 was absolutely um, a sort of general point. It was roughly in 10 years, but it included 2018. It includes what's going to happen in a couple of years. And, you know, a lot of these sort of major events have been occurring, as you pointed out, in 2020. But I think what's really important to remember is that, you know, it's not like all of a sudden in 2020, these sorts of things started to happen. They had already been happening. There was issues of um, police violence against unarmed black people in 2019 and 2018 and 2017. These aren't entirely new issues. They're becoming increasingly common, increasingly large and widespread, and increasingly sort of recognized by the media and by others. But it's not like 2020 is, you know, containing all of the, these issues. If you and Dr. Turchin, though, and that, again, that was his quote, but if you are right, and clearly there's something to this, it would seem, mm-hmm. uh, we're now entering a decade or a decade and a half of upheaval. That's pretty darn depressing. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, we, we are not in the business of making, you know, very specific predictions like, okay, on this day, you know, a year from now or 10 years from now, everything's going to be fine. Really what we point out in the sort of cycles um, that you mentioned that, that Peter and I uh, like to work with points out that these sorts of trends, these sorts of pressures are with us right now. and They're going to continue to be with us for the next few years unless um, action is taken to sort of redress some of these underlying structural ills. And that's, you know, what gives me hope is that we're not doomed for the next 10 years there are things that people can be doing about it as long as they are sort of aware of the actual underlying issues. One -hmm. comment I will make just as we go to the break, and that is, yes, we can do something about it, but the fact that you're able to make such a pattern out of this shows that we don't learn from our history clearly. So whether we will or not is something else altogether. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Hoyer, one of the things that this suggests, if we follow the pattern again, and if if we're saying, well, you know what, this is predictable enough that these things sort of, they build and they have to be dealt with. What it suggests is that, you know, there's a new president coming in in the States and lots of people are saying, well, Joe Biden's going to be able to bring down the temperature. Will he really, will he really be in a position? Will anybody be in a position to really do that? Or does this simply have to play itself out? I mean, that's really the, the million dollar question right there. And that's something that we've been talking a lot uh, about in our group as well. I think it's a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. I think that there's definitely things that he can do. There's things that any particular administration can do. And to be honest, there are some positive signs that um, he's focusing on, you know, reconciliation, being um, sort of reaching across the aisle, so to speak, really working to reestablish some of the norms of cooperation that have been eroding in recent years. On the other hand, you know, as we talk about what, what our research shows, is that a lot of the pressures that lead to these kinds of events, these kinds of um, moments of violence are really deep and structural, and they take years, sometimes decades, to actually develop. Mm. And what that also means is that they take just as long to turn around the other way. And so really, the kind of structural changes that we need and that we need to see, not only in the U.S., but in Canada and other countries as well, is going to require sort of sustained effort that's going to um, last longer than any one particular administration. And so, you know, that's, that's the worry, is making sure that the, the sort of positive efforts 
are kept up for as long as they need to be. Well, look, and I like to believe that I'm a bit of a student of history, although I'm not claiming to be a PhD in history, just someone who observes and is interested. But it seems that what's unique about now, and I'm sure there's been cases where it's been this way before, but what seems to be unique about now in modern times is that usually we see one side that feels disenfranchised, so they lash out or they they act out. Right now, it seems both sides of the political aisle feel angry and feel disenfranchised. It seems like everybody is bent out of shape about something, which I would think complicates things a lot more. Well, actually, I mean, that's really what we see in the historical record all the time. It's, it's often sort of one side rises up, feels disenfranchised, feels sort of disabused. But then the other side comes quickly and says, no, 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 you know, I'm going to defend my territory. I'm going to defend the pendulum. Turf. Exactly. You, you do see the pendulum swing throughout history. Often, you know, that's lost in the historical records. It's only sort of the one side, the final side, who, who sort of strikes the last blow gets recorded in the history books. Um, you know, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon and, and uh, takes down the Roman Republic. But there were many other kind of mini Caesars before him on both sides, for example, right? So, so this is actually something we see time and again. Um, so it's not, it's not really that unusual. Well, the, clearly part of this, I would think, has to be a sense that I deserve better. I, something, I deserve more. And when you put enough eyes together, uh, you create, you know, you can have a mob or you can have a, a riot or whatever else. And it seems, and this is one of the other reasons I find your your theory or your prediction so interesting, um, it was done, I mean, I know there was social media in 2012. We're not coming out of the dark ages, but it's, you know, in the past number of years, it's really expanded. I look at this and think there's an awful lot that social media has to do with this because you, the I that I'm talking about, I can have my own opinion, but social media now lets me find the other people who share that view, which brings us together into that raging anger together, whereas I may just have stewed about it myself before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's, you got it just right, is that the sort of social media, the ease of access of these kinds of groups, these sort of um, small knit identity groups, it makes it just easier to find these kinds of echo chambers. Now, it's actually not that different than it has been in the past. I mean, even before social media, before cell phones, before modern communication, people were caught forming these kinds of groups. There was just as much polarization um, in ancient times. But it took a little bit longer to develop. And so really mm. the only difference that we're seeing in modern times is these kinds of cycles, these kinds of dynamics um, are speeded up. And so they're happening on a much faster time scale um, than we've seen in the past. All right. I'm going to ask you something that I know that I asked you last time you were on. You may not remember. No one listening probably is going to remember. But I remember your answer and I want to ask you again. And again, going back, and I've said this a bunch of times, this prediction that you made was was eight, nine years ago. It was before... Anyone had ever contemplated the idea that Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States, and yet you said 2020 was going to be the time that there would be this uprising. Um, if your prediction or if your theory is correct, that means this would have happened no matter who was in power or who was in the White House. Do, do you still believe that? Yes, uh, you know, definitely. And as I said, it's not, you know, it's easy to focus on Donald Trump, and this is the most obvious, the most violent, the most disruptive events happening sort of under his watch. But, there, you know, this has been building for, for years and for the, the past at least three, maybe four successive administrations. And, you know, as I said, the pressure's build, the pressure's build, they really put the conditions in place. It's like a, a weather forecast. You know, when it says it's 90% chance of rain, it doesn't mean you know exactly on which block or which street it's going to rain. But chances are, if you go outside, you're going to need your umbrella. 
And that's really how we like in the situation now, that the pressure hmm. was such that, you know, it may not have been Trump, it may even have been on, not on the Republican side, it may have been a sort of um, Democratic uh, pedagogue, um, but, you know, somebody was likely to rise up and disrupt norms and sort of um, hasten this polarization that we've seen. It is a fascinating uh, bit of science and, 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 you know, theory and everything else that you were able to, to make this call. And, uh, you know, as I say, when we talked back in June, it wasn't nearly what it is now. And it was sort of, oh, maybe things are not looking so good. And then all of a sudden it happened. And I've mm-hmm. about 20 times said, I got to get him back on because uh, they, they, they clearly knew what they were talking about. Uh, Dan Hoyer, Dr. Dan Hoyer, project manager at the Global History Data Bank Project. You can look that up online. Really appreciate you taking some time again today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, and hopefully next time we'll have much nicer things to talk about. <laughs> That's right. Make another prediction that says everything's going to be peaceful and exactly. unicorns and rainbows after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's your, uh, well, duh, comment of the day. We all eat. We do. We all eat. Every one of us. Uh, which makes our next discussion, I think, particularly relevant for all of us because, um, you know, there, it's just, it's one of those things that we are all subject to the whims and the way the winds blow and the way the market and the economy around food goes. And there's a lot of stuff going on right now with inflation and other things. Um, but just before the end of the year, and this brings us all together before the end of the year, my next guest did a survey. He and some people who work with him, uh, did a survey asking people what they expect their eating habits and food consumption will be like in 2021. There are some very, very interesting, and and depending on what business you're in, i.e. restaurants, uh, maybe some very concerning things here. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is no stranger to this show. He is the uh, professor, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at uh, Dalhousie University. He is known as the food professor. He joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today, as always. Hey, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And, and by the way, thank you. Uh, Sylvain was supposed to be on last night and uh, things changed. I appreciate you being so flexible to come on again tonight. Uh, um, democracy comes first. Democracy well, comes first. I, I don't know. Understand. Food, food, democracy, you know. <laughs> um, look, in this, in this research, in this survey you did, there's a lot of things that I found really interesting. Uh, but the one though, and, and let's start here, the one that really jumped off the page at me when you were asking about people's, what they expect their habits around eating are going to be in 2021, 60% of people said they plan to eat out less. And I have to believe that if you are someone involved in the restaurant industry that are reeling already and barely hanging on after COVID lockdowns and everything else, this has to be just devastating kinds of numbers when you see that and say, what, they're not going to come out even when they can? Well, this, yeah, I was actually a little bit surprised. I thought, you know, after the year we've gone through, perhaps some people out there would want to go out a yes. little bit more. The, I mean, the most shocking thing, and, and that's one thing I, I think you didn't mention, is that every year we actually conduct the same survey and we ask the same people. So we actually can compare year to year public sentiment. So... Last year, 12 months ago, we did ask the same question. 60% uh, of Canadians wanted to go out less. But that was before COVID. <laughs> that was yeah. 12 months ago, which was, you know, a decade ago. Now we asked the same question, and we got the same results. 
same result. Yeah, and I'm with you. I really thought people, once the, once the barn doors could be thrown open, they'd be just scampering to get out and go dine out again, but apparently not. Absolutely. So I was a little bit surprised by that. I, I guess people are still anxious about, about the virus, about the whole thing. Uh, I certainly, I'm, I'm in Nova Scotia here. I mean, the situation is certainly under control. Restaurants are actually open here. And uh, we went out to uh, to a restaurant just last night and felt safe. There was no problem. But a lot of people don't feel the same, clearly. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about their health, and uh, they just want to stay in as much as possible. Do you believe, and I don't know if there's any way to know this, it may just be your, your gut feel, but do you believe this is because of the pandemic and safety issues, or do you think it's because of cost or because of personal finances or... Or is there something else that would be behind this? I think it's a mixed bag of different issues here. There's obviously the virus. Uh, affordability is going to be is going to be an issue. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, as you know, we released uh, the eleventh uh, Canada's food price report, and we're expecting menu prices to go up. If you're on a tight budget and you're looking at saving some money for the next year, well, the last place you want to be is at a restaurant because that's yeah, or lost your job. Yeah, well, exactly. or lost your job in the in the pandemic for sure. Exactly. So you're going to have to be careful, and if 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 you're if you're on a tight budget, uh, you want to stay away from restaurants as much as possible. So uh, I mean, I don't know how much you know. Hamilton in the last decade or so has had a just a booming restaurant business. A lot of uh, great restaurants have started up here, but of course, it's been very very difficult over the last year. What can they do then? Is there anything a restaurant can do to counter this if there is a movement that says, you know, I'm really nervous about going out or I don't have the money to go? What can they do about it? Yeah, I feel bad for the for the restaurant scene in, in Hamilton because uh, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. When I was living in Guelph, uh, de- like more than a decade ago, Hamilton was not known as a place no, to go out no. at all. But things have changed uh, for the better. I mean, it's uh, I, I I felt Hamilton became a vibrant city, uh, a city where you can find some really really great restaurants. So I really feel bad for for what has happened uh, over the last twelve months. Uh, I mean, to keep the momentum going, and frankly, if restaurant operators are quite resilient, what we've seen across the country are are restaurant operators pivoting reinventing themselves, and of course those are overused words these days, but uh, I mean a meal's a meal and art is art, and restaurant operators can actually offer something unique to people uh, who are at home, probably experiencing some cooking fatigue a little bit, and so you can actually come in with some really neat solutions with something that tastes different, that tastes uh, uniquely different. So there's always a space, there's always like a spot for restaurant operators to fit in somewhere. You just mm-hmm. need a little bit, you, need, you just need to little, be a little bit more innovative outside your own dining hall. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So then one of the, back to your survey for a second, slightly different thing, um, a positive, I think, is that something like 40% of those you polled say they intend to work on reducing the food waste they create. I think that's a very positive thing. Uh, the question is, do you believe that they actually will do this? I mean, people I'm sure have said this before. Do you believe they will follow through and cut back on their waste? You know, the, f- 
food waste is the one food food bill you'll never receive, but you have to pay for. You have to pay it. I mean, that's basically what what food waste is. It's invisible. And you can't really see it. You, you don't quantify it at home. It's there. You know it, it's there. You can do a better job. I actually think that COVID has made us better food inventory managers at home. We're more aware of what's in our fridge, what's in our freezer. Uh, when we show up at the grocery store, we're not buying things we don't need. Uh, we're more disciplined and focused. Uh, I actually think that we're better food waste managers. So, yeah, absolutely. We're never perfect, and uh, we're always going to waste, but um, I actually think we're getting better at it. The one shocker for me, I don't know about you, but the one shocker for me was dieting. I mean, 28% fewer Canadians are planning to diet this year, and we've been all talking about the COVID-15 yep. or the pandemic pounds, and and <laughs> that was surprising. I actually thought that people, compared to last year, I thought this year people would want to diet a little bit more, but no, not at all. People just aren't focused on losing weight right now. Well, not only for the health factor, but you, you mentioned before this, uh, you mentioned a moment ago that you did another uh, study a little before the end of the new year, and it was talking, it included talks about food inflation and, and the cost of what food is going to be. I would think, again, if you have a lot of people who have had a disruption in their income and the price of food is going to go up, even if you're not worried about your health, you may be thinking about cutting back a little just because, you know what, it's costing a lot more money now to eat. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, people are going to be a, uh, way more frugal this year, which is why we think that uh, uh, private labels are, are in. Uh, we're, we're likely to see more private labels. Uh, people aren't going to trade up. They're going to be trading down or sideways. They're going to be looking for, uh, for cheaper, more affordable options uh, over the next 12 months or so. So that, that is one thing that is a reality. Gardening is, is also in, you probably saw in the results. Uh, yes. Yep. The number, <laughs> the number of Canadians who are planning to garden has doubled, doubled. So a lot of gardening that's going to happen this year for sure. A lot of parsley will be eaten because people can't grow anything else. <laughs> <at all. laughs> They'll be garnishing everything with parsley. Now, uh, just uh, I know we're talking about the survey, but to go back to that other uh, piece that you did just before the end of the year, you mentioned something, and I just wanted to bring this up because I thought it was fascinating. Um, we were talking about the carbon tax and how that will impact on food, and you said by 2030, a farmer with a 5,000-acre farm, and I think that's not out of line. There's a lot of farmers who would have big farms like that. They'll have to shell out an additional $150,000 a year in taxes. We're talking about food prices going up. That's got to have an impact on food prices, what we would expect, correct? Well, yeah, absolutely. So the we're, we're actually, um, we're, we're walking towards a, a, a carbon tax of $50 a metric ton by 2022, which is next year. That was the plan. But just before the holidays, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau actually announced, uh, really a surprise, he announced that uh, his, his government intends to go ahead with a uh, $170 a metric ton carbon tax by 2030. So at $50, you could politicize the issue of the carbon tax. You can say, yes, it could have an impact on food prices or not. The, the evidence is, to be honest, right now, weak. It's hard to see how the carbon tax is impacting food inflation. But at $170, that's a totally different conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, no. And, and, and let's stick with price again. We have a minute or so left here. Let's go back to the survey and stick with price for one more thing. Uh, when you asked people what kinds of food they were most concerned about when it comes to prices, I don't think this would probably be too surprising. Vegetables, fruits, yep. meat, dairy in that order. Um, that doesn't sound like the makings of a, of a healthier diet for people if those are things they're going to be cutting back on. Well, they're not necessarily uh, cutting back, or they don't want to cut back. It's just they're, they're just concerned, and uh, and I think it's not surprising because those food categories are quite volatile. I mean, in order, that's basically what it is. I mean, <laughs> when you walk to the grocery store, you never know what kind of shock you'll be in when you go uh, in the produce section, and then after that, the meat counter. And certainly, 2020 was no exception. I mean, a lot of people uh, went through a sticker shocking moments at the meat counter whether it was beef chicken or pork this year or in the last 12 months in produce you never know what what to expect and that's why more and more uh, provinces are thinking about food autonomy producing more food all year round including ontario and in your area more and more we are expecting more greenhouses which is great i mean it's great to see that uh, but we need investments uh, mm. private investors can't do it alone so, uh, just, and governments know that because uh, agri-food is a high-volume, low-margin business. Uh, most investors are looking for high-tech, clean-tech to go in, put money in, and get out in two years. You can't do that with agri-food. Craft dinner is the answer. Craft dinner. <laughs> just stock up on crates well, of craft way, dinner. You know how much, Katie, you cost now? It's, it's double what it was two years ago, by the uh, way. Oh yeah. See, I, I thought I thought we were getting away with one there, but Man, apparently not. Getting, Even that's going up. You're getting glow in the dark <laughs> for double the price. <laughs> I'm gonna test that. I'm gonna see if it glows in the dark. Uh, Doctor <laughs> Sylvain Charlevoix, always love having you on. Happy New Year! Thanks for doing this. Happy New Year! Take care. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.